This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we want to hear your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We love to bring you wise voices, too, who can share their wealth of life experience and wisdom with us. This nation has so many of them. They're in a town near you. And, well, we bring them to you. They're not famous people, but, my goodness, they're much more important. They're not seeking fame, but, boy, do they have something that will offer called wisdom. And Frank Hanna, well, he has one of those voices. He's a husband, a father. He's an investor who lives in the Atlanta area and who we now get to hear from in our latest edition of our regular feature, Don't Be a Fool, with Frank Hanna. Who does wealth belong to? Who do the material goods of this earth belong to? And you know, interestingly enough, no matter what faith tradition someone may come from, or even for an avowed pagan and avowed atheist, for most people there is a sense somewhere within them that if I have more food than I need on my plate and you are sitting next to me and you are starving, that I ought to give you some of mine. Now, obviously, I'm giving the most blatant example of when one ought to share one's goods, okay? But I think it's hard to imagine anyone other than someone who's just avowed toward evil right, who would say, no, I have way more than I can even eat on my plate. Someone's starving next to me and I'm not going to give them something to eat. I mean, almost everyone would say, well, yes, you would, you would share that. And if you push them further, they'd probably say, you're obliged to share that. So once we, even if it's all yours, even if you bought your food with your money, or even if you grew all this food on your farm, you toiled, you worked, even with all that, you, you did everything, boom, there it is, the food's on your plate, you're still probably obliged to give them something. So once we acknowledge that, we're on our way towards saying, hmm, I'm not gonna live forever, there are a lot of earthly goods here, these things here on earth probably don't exist just for me. So once you, you, know, once you acknowledge that, which almost everybody would kind of have to acknowledge that to some degree, okay? We then bump up against, though, this notion of private property. So the question is how to, how to reconcile. You know, Thomas Aquinas talked about the needs for private property. And he gave some very good reasons that private property exists. And he, he studied a lot of different societies. And, and he found that people actually, they take care of things better when it's their own private property. They're more likely to bring more out, be more productive with it. He said there's more order in society if things are private. You know, because you're not always squabbling over whose turn or this or that to, to, to use the horse for a plow. You know, there's, there's more order in society. And he and many other great thinkers, and most societies have realized, you know, allowing for private ownership promotes the well-being of everyone, okay? So we have these two kind of competing realizations. One is that private property is a good thing. 
And yet another is, you know, the goods of this earth aren't just here for me. That there's a universal destination. And in fact, that destination, that destiny for goods is to be used for everyone. Therein lies the rub for anyone who has more than they need. Because the question then becomes, how ought I to live? You know, and, and especially for Americans who we are, the 300 million people who live in this country are wealthier than 99.9% .9 of the human beings who have ever lived. Wealthier in terms of material terms. We, did, we just have so much stuff, so much, so much food, so much shelter, so much clothing. In this country, yes, there are a few homeless people, many, many times because of mental illness and things, <clears throat> which is terrible, but the point is, we're not lacking for the money to feed everyone in this country. And most people actually do have full bellies. Not only do they have full bellies and a roof over their head and clothes on their back, over 95% of the people have big, you know, color TVs and air conditioning and all that kind of thing too. So, I mean, the, the, the material wealth is just incredible. I think that's one reason you see in the U.S. it's one of the most generous countries in the world. People do give away a lot of their money because they do feel this sense. The difficulty comes, I think, in determining, yeah, but let's say that I'm, I don't want to just offer a guilt offering of, of money, that I want to live the right way we are stewards of the wealth we have. What is a steward? A steward is somebody who watches over something, not as if they own it and can do anything they want with it, but more as someone who has a responsibility for administering something. Are they entitled to just compensation for administering it? Sure. You know, if I put something of mine uh, if, if I ask you to watch over it for 20 years and watch over, let's say, a beach house, right, and take care of it, I'm fine paying you for watching over that house, but I don't want you to start thinking that house is yours, right, because I just put you in charge of it to watch over it for when I need it. And so I think it's healthy for us to consider that the material goods that are in our possession, that we're stewards of those, uh, that we don't own them. And you know, in the book I compare, imagine that the president of the bank starts to think that the money in the vault that the depositors have put in there is his own money. I mean, we've got a problem then if he starts spending it like it's his own money. It's not his money. We put it in the vault and we asked him to watch it. And you're listening to Frank Hanna. And by the way, the book he was referring to was What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well. And you can get it at Amazon.com. Also, he's written... A Graduate's Guide to Life, Three Things They Didn't Teach You in College That Could Make All the Difference. And when we come back, we'll continue with Frank Hanna and Don't Be a Fool after these messages. And we continue here on Our American Stories. 
with Don't Be a Fool with Frank Hanna. And Frank is a husband, a father, and an investor who lives in the Atlanta area. And Frank also happens to be Lebanese-American, and, and I am too. And so in the end, we Lebanese folks, we, we sort of know each other. It's really crazy how we, we sort of stick together, find each other, and talk about life here in this great country. And so let's return to Frank Hanna and his story about stewardship, about money, and about, well, what to do with it. So I think when we start to, you know, I've had people, because I had some business success, and I remember somebody once saying to me when I was talking to them about some of these issues, well, it's your money, you can do whatever you want with it. And I thought, well, that doesn't, I'm not sure I agree with that. That doesn't feel right. I know it's common to hear that, but it doesn't feel right. And I thought, why does it not feel right? Uh, and I, two reasons. One is I thought, do anything you want with it. That doesn't, that doesn't ever sound right. You know, I mean, I don't want to do evil things with it, okay? Even if it is my money. But the other part is, is it my money? I mean, when I die, it won't be my money anymore. It'll be somebody else's money. So it's not something like stays in my name forever. It belongs to this earth. It's sort of like, is the, is the soil that's underneath my feet when I'm walking, is that, is that my soil? It's going to be here when I'm gone. And so I, I think the idea that we're passing through, that we have stewardship of things, but they're, they're not just ours to do with whatever we want. And, and this is a little bit radical thinking. You know, people used to view, uh, wives used to be regarded as chattel, as property. You could kind of, uh, like a cow. And, and there's some cultures that's, that's still the case. All right, wives and children, you know, people used to negotiate off daughters, right, to form alliances and stuff, and they'd put together marriages, right, and they'd kind of treat the kids like they were this thing to be bartered. That's a real problem. That's a real problem against human dignity. So I think in the same way that we, we shouldn't think of human beings like that, I think we ought to, I don't think we ought to think of ourselves in that way. I, I don't know about this idea, you know, in America, I love freedom, I love that foundational concept of our country, but I don't believe that freedom is the greatest good. I think love is the greatest good. And interestingly enough, love almost always requires some sacrifice of freedom. So between love and freedom, love ranks higher. So. Freedom's important, but I think even with our own lives, even with our own lives, I think we're supposed to be stewards of our own lives. I think we're supposed to be stewards of our own lives. I did not earn my intellect, my energy level, where I was born, my parents. I mean, there's so many things. And so, you know, we know the phrase, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I look around and I think, the harmony I hear with my ears, the sunsets I see, these things are all free. I, ain't gotta, I didn't earn any of them. All those beautiful, I did not, beautiful, so many of these wonderful time things, when my grandson says, I didn't earn, smiles at me. I didn't earn that. And so for people to say, oh no, that's yours, it all belongs to you. I, I think, uh, now I'm not in any way for the state some government getting involved in that, okay? I think it almost always leads to ruin. I am for free markets, 
so many of these wonderful things didn't earn minimal regulation, minimal government, because I think government kind of gives one group of human beings the capability of controlling another group of human beings, and, and it rarely turns out well. But I do think within our voluntary organizations with which you associate, our families, our workplaces, our churches, that we ought to take more of an approach that we are stewards of what we have. I did a couple of things in the book. One is I looked at the different kinds of ways we might spend money. So, you know, I think to spend money on what I call the fundamentals of life, you know, food and shelter and clothes, I think that's not only justified, that's, that's what we ought to do for our children and those we love, you know, spend money on that. And then I go through and I kind of divide between non-essential goods and essential goods. You know, there's some things that I have to spend for my work, right? And they may be a luxury to somebody who's work, you know, it's justified for me to spend that money. But I think if we, if we break down our goods in looking at what's fundamental, what's essential, what's non-essential, we can start to then assess, well, how, what, ought, what ought I to do with this non-essential wealth? This is not something that I really need. I don't want to pretend that I don't have any luxuries in my life. I do. I'm sitting in air conditioning right now. And for most of human history, that's been an enormous luxury. I enjoy golf, you know, and that's a... But, but I do think it's important to continually be mindful. I think part of the whole issue of living ethically with wealth is to have a mindfulness about it. A little bit like the way we can eat now. Now let's face it, one reason we're able to get fat is that centuries ago there was no food in the winter because everything was snow covered. So we would eat as much as we could in the summer and the fall, almost like bears, and we would fatten up and then kind of live off of that because there wasn't much. We'd store up some food, but we didn't eat as much in the winter, right? Well, now we can eat all we want. And everybody in America can eat all they want almost whenever they want. So what do we do? Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't eat. It doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy your food. It doesn't mean you can't have dessert every now and then. But you do have to be mindful. Because if you're not mindful, you're going to get unhealthy. You're going to eat so much you're unhealthy. So I think we kind of have to address wealth in the same way. You know, it's okay to spend some money. It's okay to, you know, to have a nice car. Do you need a Maserati? No, it's hard to say you need a Maserati. And I think you even have to say, if I got a Maserati, what's that gonna, how's that gonna affect me? How's that gonna affect my friends? How's that gonna affect my neighbors? If I've got young kids, how's that gonna affect my kids? What are my kids gonna think when dad's driving around in a Maserati? Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about a Maserati, but it does have an effect. There's nothing inherently sinful about chocolate cake. But if you eat a whole chocolate cake every day, there's gonna be ramifications, right? So I think a lot of living ethically, morally with wealth is this mindfulness of the fact that many of us have more than we need. And so just like most of us have more food available to us than we ought to eat. And, and in fact, if you look, I mean, probably the biggest epidemic, the biggest health epidemic in the United States of America today is obesity. That is the biggest, and it has all these ramifications, right? Because it's, food's good and it's hard to turn it down. And if you're not mindful, 
we all eat too much of it. So, so I think it's kind of the same thing with money and the, and the goods we can buy. I think it, it requires that mindfulness. We all rely on society's conventional wisdom. That, that, that we kind of have to do that to get through the day. You can't th think through everything on your own. You have to, but, but I think when it's the really important matters, that we do need to stop and be more deliberate. And that's why the things like what you should do with your money, that's really an important thing. That's why I wrote the book, okay? That's why it says what your money means and how to use it well. I have found that for, for almost everybody, rich, poor, or and in between, that how they think about their money, what they do to get their money, and what they do with their money affects their lives dramatically. And I believe most of us aren't deliberate about it, that we just swim along with the currents of the convention that are in our society. And that's okay when it comes to uh, whether it, uh, you, you know, mayonnaise is better on a hamburger than ketchup, okay? And, and you just rely on what other people say. That's fairly trivial stuff. When it comes to things like how you use your money, I think we have to be more thoughtful. And you've been listening to Frank Hanna in our Don't Be a Fool series. And again, if you know someone like Frank, a man or a woman in your neighborhood who has great wisdom, a person who has accomplished things or knows things or people seek advice from, uh, send them to us, ouramericannetwork.org. Uh, from all around this great country, we know there is great wisdom. And the book, by the way, is What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well. And you can pick it up at Amazon.com. That's Frank Hanna we've been listening to. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a son. And he's an investor in the Atlanta area. And he's someone I know and whose family I know and admire. And again, send those that you know to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Don't be a fool. In a way, it's so much more than just advice. It's how to think about what something is mean to you, your family, and your community. This is Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about every facet of American life. And periodically, those are faith stories, because we know that faith animates so many Americans in their walk and in their day-to-day -day lives. Elizabeth Elliot has been described as one of the most influential Christian women of the 20th century. Let's get right into the story. Here's Greg Hengler. Through Gates of Splendor is a 1957 best-selling book written by Elizabeth Elliot. Upon release, the book was so popular that it competed with John F. Kennedy's profiles in courage in terms of sales. Through Gates of Splendor tells the story of Operation Alka, an attempt by five American missionaries, Jim Elliot, the author's husband, Pete Fleming, 
Ed McCulley, pilot Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian, a participant at the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, to reach the Alka tribe of eastern Ecuador. All five men were killed by the tribe. In 1967, a documentary film, also titled Through Gates of Splendor, was narrated by Elizabeth Elliot herself. Thanks to the folks at Vision Video, we are about to hear this story. Here's Elizabeth Elliot. The Republic of Ecuador, 3,000 air miles due south of New York City, is one of our friendly South American neighbor nations. Quito, its capital city, is just below the equator, 9,000 feet up in the Andes. This is where the story began. At one time or another, all of us jungle missionaries stayed with Nate and Marge Saint in their rustic and thoroughly functional house. Marge managed to find time to take care of her three children and supply the jungle missionaries with everything from fresh beef and fruits to screens and nails. Whenever Nate took off with supplies, it was Marge who bought, stored, packed, weighed, and even helped Nate load them into the plane. She kept his ground log, knew his position in the air, and stood by at all times with shortwave radio. The friendly Quichuas, with whom Jim, Pete, and Ed worked, all knew Nate's little yellow plane and weren't afraid of it. They even begged for rides. Even some of the well-known tribe of head shrinkers called Hibaros had heard the words of the Lord Jesus from Raj and others, and some had come to believe. Nate was very ingenious. He invented a sort of pod on the wing struts which would release a parachute with supplies. When Jim and I were just married, we opened a new station at a place called Puyupungu. For five months, we had no airstrip, and Nate dropped some of our supplies to us by parachute. When the airstrip at Puyupungu finally passed Nate's testing procedure, and he made his first landing with us, we were as excited as the Indians. It gave us hopes of opening more stations, of getting around more often to visit the Indians. There was one group of Indians no one had ever visited and come out alive. They were the Alcas, feared even by neighboring Indian tribes. One day when Nate had flown into Arahuno, where Ed and Mary Lou lived, they decided to make another search. Everyone knew they were there, somewhere in the jungle. Alcas had killed a Quechua Indian near Ed's station only a few months before. The five fellows had talked and prayed a lot about reaching these people. But it seemed a very remote possibility until that day in September 1955. Ed and Nate were just about to turn around and fly for home when they saw the house. They didn't see any people, but there was no question about it. It was an Alka house. Long before this, Nate had devised an air-to-ground exchange by means of a bucket suspended on a long cord from the plane. He even dropped a telephone so we could talk back and forth with the plane. As the plane circled slowly in the air, the bucket dropped to the vortex of the cone. Don't ask how he figured it out. 
Aviation experts are still trying. This, the boys decided, was just what they would use to try and contact the Alcas. Years before, when the shell plane had dropped gifts, the Alcas thought they had fallen from the stomach of the plane because it had been wounded or frightened by the lances they had thrown. So it was important that the Indians see that the new visitors had the power to give or withhold the gift right up to the moment of delivery. For 15 weeks, they made regular flights over the village, dropping gifts free fall with streamers attached so the Indians could find them easily. When the boys began to make bucket drops, the Alcas even built a platform so they could get up nearer the plane. You can imagine the excitement when one day the Indians sent back a roasted monkey in the bucket. Subsequent flights brought feathers, combs, even a live parrot. Encouraged that the Alcas had accepted the gifts and returned offerings of their own, the men searched constantly for some clearing where the plane might land and they could carry out their mission of meeting the Alcas face to face. Each trip the men planned and prayed, and each trip contributed something to their meager store of knowledge as to the habits and attitude of these primitive people. Finally, the day came when they believed God's time had come for them to go and meet the Algas. Nate had explored the Kuradai River and discovered a patch of beach on which he could land. They called it Palm Beach. Back at Shalmeta, Marge had regular contact with the party on the beach, taking down the messages in a code we had devised because we wanted to keep the operation quiet until the men had made the first successful contact. While so far they had seen no Alcas, they believed they were in the area, were probably watching their every move as the missionary party made camp on the beach. A shaft with ribbons was stuck in the ground so the Alcas would identify the men as those who had dropped gifts from the air. Jim had prefabricated a treehouse with his electric saw in Shandia. Nate had flown it in piece by piece, and they worked all day getting it up so that they would have a defensible position in case of sudden attack. While Jim and the fellows were on the beach, I was at home in Shandia, listening every chance I got to the radio messages between Palm Beach and Marge. Marge was indispensable. Whenever Nate was away, she knew where he was every hour. She knew how much gas he had on board. She'd run outside, take a look at the sky and let him know just what kind of weather he could expect for landing. Without radio, the flying program would have been impossible. On Friday, January 6, 1956, after three days of waiting on the beach, three Alcas appeared. The fellows called the young man George. Of course, neither party understood the other, except for a few words that Jim had learned from an Alka girl who had left her tribe. George seemed completely at ease, loved our insect repellent, and even asked by signs for a ride in the airplane. The younger girl, promptly nicknamed Delilah, was fascinated with the texture of the plane, rubbing her body against the fabric and imitating with her hands, when she wasn't scratching, the plane's movement. Then, late in the afternoon, they left. The men waited for them to return. On Sunday at noon, Nate radioed Marge. Looks like they'll be here for the afternoon service. Pray for us. This is the day. We'll contact you at 4.30.
But at 4.30, there was only silence. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story. And you're listening to Elizabeth Elliot herself. And we love it when we can find material pulled from archives and hear directly from voices that are from the past. But the stories are very much connected to the present. Elizabeth Elliot's story continues here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Return to Our American Stories and to Elizabeth Elliot. And again, we're going to go back to her storytelling and hear her concluding words from our last segment. On Sunday at noon, Nate radioed Marge. Looks like they'll be here for the afternoon service. Pray for us. This is the day. We'll contact you at 4.30. But at 4.30... There was only silence. That is until the January 30th, 1956 issue of Life magazine hit the newsstands. The magazine cost 20 cents. Life magazine circulated to 8.5 million American homes every week. But on page 10 of this issue, there's a stark black and white photo of five young women sitting around a kitchen table. It takes up almost the entire width of the oversized two-page spread. There are half-eaten sandwiches on the plates in front of them, and toddlers are wiggling in their laps and on their shoulders. They're listening to a man with his back to the camera. The man is telling them about the search party that found the dead bodies of their five husbands. The Alka had speared them, all of them, to death. The man has just told them, that they are now widows. The headline reads, Go ye and preach the gospel. Five do and die. Within days, the story of their sacrifice had circulated around the world. People were amazed. In an era of peace and prosperity, that Christians were still willing to pursue something bigger than money or the American dream. The story of sacrifice and surrender for the sake of reaching a remote tribe with the gospel was compelling even to those who questioned or mocked the faith of the missionaries. And they weren't done. Most notably, Elizabeth Elliot and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint. Here again is Elizabeth Elliot. I went back to Shandia where Jim and I had lived and continued to work with the Kichwas. People all over the world began to pray for the Alcas. I prayed too, but it seemed a faithless prayer at times. I asked God to open a door somehow, but I had no idea what to suggest. I asked him to send somebody in there, somebody who could tell them what the five men had wanted to tell them, that the God who made them actually cared about them, and that he was worth trusting. I told the Lord I was willing to go if he wanted me to, but that seemed absurd too. If five men had been killed, 
Who would ever succeed? I knew that God could do it if he wanted to, and that was the reason for prayer. Prayer is not a vain thing. In November 1958, two Alka women came out of their tribe right into a Quechua village. I met them, and they came back to Shandia to live with me. Dayuma, the Alka girl who had given Jim some help on the language, had been with Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, for several years now, and Rachel had some valuable language data which she shared with me. I used this as a basis and began to study with Mintaka and Mangamo, the two who were with me. One day when the three got together, Dayuma, Mintaka, and Mankamo, they said, we're going home. So they went, and Rachel and I waited for them. When they returned, they invited the three of us, including my little girl, Valerie, to go and live there. We had prayed for this. Others were praying for it, too. We knew that this was God's doing. We went. It took us three days by foot over jungle trails and streams, by canoe down the Curarai and up the Anyangu rivers, and then by foot again to the Tiwano. Here, we came face to face with Alcas. The first one we saw was Delilah, Dayuma's younger sister the very one who had been friendly to the five men on the Kurarai beach two days before they died. I had to keep reminding myself that these, these very people, were the ones who had killed the men. They were called one of the most savage tribes in the world. What made them savage? They were human beings. They laughed and played. They bathed. They showed no hostility to us. And yet I learned they had their own strict ideas about right and wrong, even if they were different from ours. They believed it was wrong to kill people, except under certain conditions. Some of them said they thought the five men were cannibals. All outsiders were cannibals, in fact. And so, of course, if they were coming to eat the Alcas, the obvious thing to do, the noble and right thing to do, was to kill them. But now, Mintaka and Mankamo and Dayuma had succeeded in convincing them that there were outsiders who were quite all right, that these foreigners would come and live in the village and tell them stories about a man named Jesus. He was a good man. They should listen to these stories and learn to talk to Jesus, to pray. So just as Mankamo had promised me months before, her people said, yes, let them come. We won't need to kill anymore. And so, I took up life with the Alcas. We decided that the best we could do was simply to live as much like them as we could, to share what they ate and the things they did. They were kind to Valerie and me. They gave Rachel a place to sleep in one of their shelters. They turned over a whole house, they called it a house, to Valerie and me. When the roof began to leak, they mended it for me. None of the houses was any more than a roof. There were no walls, no floors, no doors, and no privacy. The problem of communication was a constant one. 
I couldn't put together more than a sentence or two, and those were very short ones. Rachel and I never ceased trying to analyze and classify the language data, trying to reproduce it verbally with the proper intonations and nasalizations and all the other things which make a foreign language, and especially an unwritten language, difficult. Just try pronouncing a W with your tongue flat in the front of your mouth. They do it in a word like women, and both the vowels are nasalized besides. Valerie had no trouble. She did better with a three-year-old's memory and mimicking ability than I did with all my language files, tape recorder, and systems of mnemonics. She showed them picture books and taught them how to hold a crayon and draw. This was the best kind of language study, the attempt to understand and to be understood. The Alcas rarely counted above three, but Dayuma explained that one day in seven was God's day, and on that day she was going to talk about him. Everyone was told to come and sit down and be quiet. She told them simple stories from the Old Testament, or stories of Jesus from the new. Dayuma told them that Jesus says we must not kill. So right away, some of the men stopped making spears. But there were occasions when they needed to spear a wild pig. So with careful explanation to us about what they were for, they made new ones. These men received us as their own relatives. They were the same ones who killed Jim and Nate and Raj and Pete and Ed. They had their reasons. God had his for allowing it to happen. When five men had asked him to guide them and had trusted him for this guidance and protection. They had sung before they left home that last morning the hymn to the tune of Finlandia. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. They succeeded, not in converting the Alcas, not even in speaking to them of the name of Jesus, which the Alcas had never heard. The Indians could not have imagined the real reason for these white men being on that beach. They simply took them as a threat to their own way of life and speared them. But the men succeeded. They did the thing they had set out to do. They had obeyed God. They had taken literally his words. The world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And great job catching that and snagging it. That's Greg Hengler catching that piece. And you were listening to Elizabeth Elliot. And what a faith story indeed. In the end, so much of a faith walk. If you've had one or taking one or thinking about taking one, has to do merely with obedience and doing what your God commands you to do. And sometimes those are hard things. We know in Unforgiven, for instance, at Louis Zamperini, well, his God commanded that he forgive the captor and tormentor in his life. And that was no easy walk, and it took him many years to do it. But Zamperini reported that the day he did that well, was the day he slept at night, and that march to Nagano, to those camps near where he was tortured. Terrific storytelling indeed about faith. And this is interesting 
to people who are not of faith, of faith, and anybody else in between. And we'd love to hear your faith stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, your favorite ones out there, either yours or faith stories and history. Again, Elizabeth Elliot's story here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here, including music. And now, Jesse brings us the story of legendary radio DJ Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack! We just got a report here that hundreds of people are just swarming around the manhole covers all over the city and climbing into them. And a reliable source tells us that they are still trying to find the entrance to the studio where the Wolfman Jack show is taking place. <laughs> oh, gracious me. I, I think they found us. Wolfman Jack was born Robert Weston Smith in Brooklyn, New York on January 21st, 1938. As a young teenager, he listened to the radio in his basement where he pretended to be a DJ. As a little kid, I always listened to this radio station. I was one of, the, I was one of those kind of folks you call a radio freak, I guess. You know, I had transoceanic radio and a whole bunch of different other... You know, I listened to all the disc jockeys, different people, and copied styles, figured out how they communicated and what, why they made me feel good. And uh, I, I took all the good, positive things out of most of the, the greatest disc jockeys in the world, people like... Moondog, who's Alan Freed, you know. Hello, everybody. Hi, all. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Big John R. from WLAC down in Nashville, Tennessee, playing that good rhythm and blues. This is John R. We're down south in Dixie. Horse Allen. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Horseman. Magnificent Montague. The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. <laughs> These jocks would turn you around and flip you upside down. Magnificent Montague told me one time, if you ain't sweating, you ain't working. So I always remember that. So every time I'm on the radio, I'm sweating, baby. I'm working hard. But radio isn't exactly the easiest profession to break into. And like many of us who work in the business, Smith started out working as an intern. I uh, used to cut school and go hang out at the local black radio station. And I learned how to run the board and everything. And I was spitty then, you know, a gopher for the jocks. You know, I go down and they even let me, they even let me pick liquor up for them in the liquor store. I was only about 13 or 14 years old. And I ran all the errands for them. And they taught me what, what I had to know. And I hung around there and cut school all the time. And uh, my, my parents thought I was going to wind up to be a little, you know. I didn't know what the hell to do with me. Later, Smith attended the National Academy of Broadcasting in Washington, D.C. While going to classes at night, by day he supported himself as a door-to-door salesman. And although Smith was a high school dropout, he graduated broadcasting school at the top of his class. 
1961, Smith moved to Louisiana and started working at country music station KCIJ. I wanted everybody to love me. Although his show was successful and had many listeners, he was looking for something different. In 1963, it was in Shreveport that Bob Smith created the Wolfman Jack character. Well, you know that everything in entertainment is acting. Even singing is acting. Playing an instrument is acting. And if you want to be a good actor, you create a character for yourself. And then you act it out. You become that character. Now I have fully become the Wolfman character. It's taken me over. I mean, I can't get away from it anymore. And uh, before I used to be able to hide the, the bushes, you know. The character had always been in me. Because there was the Hound from Buffalo. And there was Moondog. Wolfman. See, it all fits, you know what I mean? It was around this time that Bob Smith had the idea to get his new Wolfman Jack show on the powerful Mexican radio station XERF, a massive 250,000-watt station with a signal that covered the entirety of North America and beyond. Outside of Del Rio, Texas, in a little town of Coahuila, the state of Coahuila, the town of Acuna, Coahuila, Mexico. Now, this is a very powerful radio station on the AM band. Probably the most powerful commercial radio station ever, ever was. In America, anyway. Yeah, like when I go to Disneyland, you know, I never have any trouble in Frontierland. I never have any trouble in Futureland. But for some reason, I always get in trouble when I wind up in Fantasyland. Oh, no! crazy? <laughs> You're listening to the Wolfman Jack Show! Wolfman Jack's personality sent energy through the radio speakers and attracted the attention of millions of people all across North America on a radio station just south of the Mexican border where the FCC has zero authority. It was so powerful, this radio station, that you could take a fluorescent bulb and go outside and hold it up in the air, it would glow. A car would pull up to the radio station and the lights would stay on. They never used it during the daytime. See, during the daytime, that ionosphere came way down here, you know, so it didn't make no sense. Even with all that power, you'd only reach San Antonio, you know what I mean? They waited till the nighttime came, you know. <laughs> then they could scoot that sucker out all over the world. But when they turned it on during the daytime to test out the transmitter, birds would come flying towards it. Psh, boom. They'd go run out and grab it, cook it for supper. <laughs> really, they used to get these damn birds flying by the... T turn on the transmitter for a half hour... They'd have supper made, you know what I mean? A car driving from New York to Los Angeles would never lose the station, beaming out at 250,000 watts. Five times the U.S. limit could be picked up all over North America, and at night, as far away as Europe and the Soviet Union. If it's a new record, I'm going to play it. If it's an oldie, I'm going to play it. If it's a fresh artist nobody ever heard, I'm going to play it. That doesn't exist anymore. Great artists out there performing, people like Bonnie Raitt and Lyle Lovett and all these cats who played a good bluesy rock and roll country touch type thing, which is really the happening music. And nobody can put them together in one format. It's kind of like this guy went, no, this guy's country. We can't put him in a rock format. No, no, she's too country. She's too blue. No, can't put her. You know what I mean? It's unforgivable. These magnificent facilities are pumping puke out. They might as well be doing that over the air because and then people are listening and say, oh, listen to that. 
Oh, isn't that fun? You know what I mean? When we return, the story of Wolfman Jack continues right here on Our American Stories. Hello, who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Hi, this is Frankie Valli, and the guy you're listening to is one of my best friends, Wolfman Jack. You got the Wolfman Jack! Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the one, the only, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> oh, telephone, where am I, my? Hello, who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Hello, this is Mick of Fleetwood Mac, reminding all my fans to listen to the Wolfman Jack show. Listen, it's good. Wolfman's mix of rowdy rock, verbal antics, and raw rhythm and blues began to make the news. His national popularity grew as stories began to appear in Time, Newsweek, Life, and City Newspapers, all asking the same questions. Who is Wolfman Jack? Where did he come from? And how did he get his hands on a Mexican radio station that could be heard all over the world at night? They would run preachers during the early part of the evening, up to around midnight. And then at midnight, they didn't know what the hell they would do. And they'd run country gospel, black gospel, they'd run all kinds of crazy stuff and after the midnight hour. So I wanted to go down to Del Rio to talk to the people who are running that station, see if I couldn't put this character Wolfman Jack on the air. So I showed up on the scene. And uh, the man who was running the station that time was a guy by the name of Arturo Gonzalez, the heaviest dude in that area. He was an international lawyer, self-made man, became a lawyer through, you know, correspondence courses, man. And he made it on through, from, came over the border mix, and now he owned Del Rio. And he owned Acuna, and he owned that radio station. So I had a meeting with him the next day. So me and my partner decided we'd go out and look at the radio station. Well, I had a brand new uh, Super 88, you know, one of those big Oldsmobile convertibles. I didn't want to take it across the border. I figured I wouldn't have anything left when I got back. So we got a cab driver to take us over there. And then we finally got over there. He took us to Boys Town. This is just red light district. You know, <laughs> all the girls do their thing. So then we found another cab driver. We wanted to go out to see the station. He says, there's no roads to the station. I said, okay, well, take us out to the station. You put some money on him. The guy took us out. All of a sudden, we out there. Black as you can see. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you raised it. You know? We're driving through these sand booths late at night. All of a sudden, out of the distance, See this little red light blinking like this. As we got closer, you could see it was a radio tower. And there was two buildings. One I found out was a building that housed the generator to supply the power to the radio station. The generator was big as a locomotive in a train, you know. I walk in, there's this great big transmitter. Looks from like out of space, you know. Big, beautiful thing. In front of it, there's little coal things sitting. These Mexican dudes, you know, cooking goat meat in front of the transmitter. One guy polishing the damn thing. 
I go to the back where the studio is, having this meeting. And while they're having the meeting, Reverend Jessup is on the air, preaching, you know, Yes, God, if you send in $25 right now, the Lord's magic number, Reverend Jessup going to send you a personally signed prayer cloth for me. You know, that, that's going on in the background. So I walk in, I meet this cat by the name of Mario Alfaro, who spoke English. None of the other people spoke English. I could communicate with Mexican folks real well. Even though I don't speak it, I, I communicate with them. But this guy spoke English. And I found out what they were doing. They wanted to appoint their own interventor. Because the one that was appointed by Gonzalez when he was pulling his deal with the preachers were playing bad head games on the boys who were running the radio station. First of all, they weren't paying them half the time. And then they would come in, if somebody didn't like what was going on, they'd come in and beat the hell out of them, you know? So they wanted to get rid of this guy. And here comes the Wolfman on the scene with a pocket full of money. My buddy with me, my Starfire Oldsmobile right across the border. What do you guys need? I got it all here. I started taking out the money and laying it on the table. Immediately they loved me. I laid it on the table. Immediately they loved me. I laid out about a thousand dollar, thousand and hundred dollar bills. I said, I want you all to have dollars and hundred one dollar bills. And I want you all to have one. And that'll show that you can trust me. Well, they were amazed. So immediately I took control of the radio station. From then on, it was a process of calling the preachers and getting the money coming to me. I sent the boys off to Mexico City to get a new interventor to take over the radio station. In the meantime, I walked in on the situation and took over this radio station. Here I was going to present this tape to Arturo Gonzalez to put Wolfman Jack on the air. And here I was on the air. The next night, of course, I went on the air as Wolfman Jack. And that's how Wolfman Jack was born. By 1966, Robert Smith was now living as Wolfman Jack 24-7 had been broadcasting on XERF for nearly five years. Major music artists such as Todd Rundegren, Leon Russell, Freddie King, and the Guess Who all produced chart-topping hits written about the Wolfman. By the early 70s, he was living in Beverly Hills, being heard all over the world and making a lot of money. Maybe too much money. Because in 1970, without warning, the Mexican government took possession of XERF. And suddenly... Wolfman Jack was off the air. Clap for the Wolfman. He gonna reach your record high. Clap for the Wolfman. You don't dig him till the day you die. But the Wolfman got to work and capitalized on his fame by editing down his old show tapes and selling them to radio stations everywhere, becoming one of the very first syndicated rock and roll programs in America. And now, here's Wolfman Jack. You know, I'm a real audio-video freak, and I've tried playing with a lot of video games in my time, even before they were invented. I, I was a real fan. And comparing them all, well, I come to one conclusion. None are as exciting as Harry Carey video games. They have the best picture, the best color, and above all, they're more violent than any other. Choose from the catalog of 456 different games, including Sidewalk Suicide, Machines That Mangle People, and my favorite, Mass Destruction of Everything on the Face of the Earth. Hey, when it comes to video games, don't be fooled. Commit to Harry Carey! <laughs> At his peak, 
Wolfman Jack was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. In 1972, he was hired to be the announcer, interviewer, and co-host of NBC TV's late-night music series, The Midnight Special. In 1973, he appeared on the film American Graffiti as himself, directed by George Lucas. He said, somebody wants to see you over Universal, they want you to do a movie. I said, okay. So I ran over there, and who's sitting behind the desk? George Lucas. I said, what's the matter, man? You need money, right, to do this film? You want me to contribute to the film? He said, no, Wolfman, we want you to be in the movie. I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And then I found out, he gave me the script, I read the movie. I knew it was a hit because it was Americana. It was what we do in the evening time. You listen to a great disc jockey, play great rock and roll records, you meet guys, you meet ladies, and you flash your car around, and you do the best thing, the most fun in the world. It's a shame a lot of kids can't do that nowadays. His broadcasts tie the film together, and the character played by Richard Dreyfus catches a glimpse of the mysterious Wolfman in this pivotal scene. Are you the Wolfman? <laughs> no, man, I'm not the Wolfman. Who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Diane. How you doing, Diane? All right. That's the Wolfman. Do you love me? He's on tape. <laughs> the man is on tape. Do you love me? Well... Yeah. Uh, where where is he now? I mean, uh, where does he work? The Wolfman is everywhere. Well, I gotta give him this note. The Wolfman comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. And there's a great big beautiful world out there. And here I sit. Sucking on popsicles. Wanting to leave? I'm not a young man anymore. And the Wolfman gave me my start in the business. And I like it. I tell you what. If I can possibly do it tonight, I'll try to relay this dedication in and get it on the air for you later on. That would be terrific. Really. Thanks. Yes, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really, I appreciate it. On July 1st, 1995, Wolfman Jack died of a heart attack at his home in Belvedere, North Carolina. <laughs> Rock on, man. We're going to do it right here. Rock and roll yourself to death. Oh, mercy. Give me some Just to get home, as he'd been on the road for several days on a promotional book tour for his autobiography. After a flight from D.C. and a limousine ride from the airport, Wolfman was happy to be home. He walked up the driveway, went inside his house, hugged his wife, and dropped dead. This is Our American Stories. Wolfman Jack! X-E-R-B! <laughs> that day... Oh, this is Wolfman Jack Show, baby! I hope all you people take... He finished broadcasting...
And we continue with our American stories. And up next, the story of Richard Montanez. Originally from Mexico, Richard's family moved to California where he grew up doing manual labor. His whole life had been spent below the poverty line. But one day, well, everything changed when he got a job as a janitor at, of all places, Frito-Lay. Faith brings us the rest of the story. Richard Montanez wrote a book titled A Boy, a Burrito, and a Cookie. From janitor to executive, Montanez was working as a janitor for Frito-Lay in the 80s. But now, he is worth millions. In his book, he talks about how fear is what holds most people back. His success did not come from his great education or from who he knew. In fact, he doesn't have a formal education at all. This is the story of how a man went from a janitor to a millionaire. What was life like growing up for Richard Montanez? I was a a young boy during the civil rights movement of the 60s. Now, what I like to tell people is that I wasn't old enough to have an impact on the movement, but I was old enough that the movement had an impact on me. Here's how the story goes. We're in a one-room apartment, and my mom's getting me ready for school because I was being bused from my school to an all-English-speaking school across town. And I remember I'm crying because I don't want to go to school. My mom says, why not? And I said, because everybody speaks English. You know, it's not fair. People forget is that, you know, during my days, there were no bilingual classes. If, if, if you wanted your license, you needed to know English. It was, it, was, it was pretty difficult. It was different. It was really different. And um, so my uncle takes me to the corner, and uh, here comes the yellow bus. And then there goes the yellow bus. So I'm kind of happy and telling my uncle, I guess they're not going to stop for us. There was about 10 of us waiting. Then all of a sudden we hear this big pop and bang and we see this green bus coming up the hill smoking. And uh, that's the bus that uh, they sent for us. And I remember I told my uncle, it's just like it happened yesterday. That's why I say sometimes you got to go back, you know, so you can catch some of those wisdom and some of the things that happened to you. So... Uh, I'm telling my uncle, why can't I ride the yellow bus like the other kids? And he has no explanation. I don't know. This is the bus that they sent for you. It wasn't until I was an adult that I finally realized why they sent that green bus. And it was society at the time saying that this group of children, this group of 10, they're not good enough to ride the yellow bus. Let's put them on a green bus, parade them across town so that the whole town can see that because of who they are, they're not good enough to ride. And as a a young boy, uh, I took that on because you have to understand, I didn't know what diversity was. I didn't know what discrimination was. I didn't know what race was. But one thing that I did know, and I knew my color. So for me, it was like, oh, dark skin is kind of like a second class citizen. That's all I knew. Oh. Okay, so I began to take that on. I'm not good enough for the yellow bus. So we get to school. I don't understand the word the teacher's saying, uh, but I always said this, that there's one sound that's international, that every child knows that sound. That is the recess or the lunch bell. It was uh, lunchtime, so it was all a relief. And, you know, my group, we got our lunches, and, you know, we sat outside, and uh, I pulled my lunch out. And I was getting ready to take a bite, and I put it back. I put it back because everybody in that whole uh, playground was staring at me. 
And the reason they were staring at me, because it was a burrito. And what people need to understand that this was 1963, the world hadn't seen a burrito yet. You know, contrary to popular belief, Taco Bell didn't introduce the burrito to the world, me and my mom did. But the fact is, I was embarrassed. So I went home and I told my mom in Spanish, said, you know, make me a bologna sandwich and a cupcake like the other kids, because I don't want to be different. And I told my mom, why do I have to ride the green bus? Why do I have to be this color? Why do I have to speak this language? Why do I have to eat this food? I want to fit in like everyone else. But my mom, I've always said she's a marketing genius. She said, no, this is who you are. And that was Wednesday when I was bus to that school. So Wednesday was my burrito nightmare. Thursday, she made me two burritos. So I went to school, shared a burrito with a friend on Thursday. Friday, I was selling burritos for 25 cents a piece. That's when I realized that even at a young age that, you know what, maybe, just maybe there is something special about different, being different. And I finally realized that none of us were created to fit in. We were all created to stand out. And I think that's what we need to teach our young people is quit trying to fit in because it's never going to happen because you weren't created to fit in. You were created to stand out. So for me, that became a revelation that led to a revolution of my life. I knew that, okay. I'm different, but it's okay. And uh, I really started to fall in love with my culture and who I was. His mom had an impact on how he saw himself. She refused to let him be ashamed of his culture, whether that be the color of his skin or his food. But there are other people in his family that impacted him as well, especially when it came to work ethic even when it meant the type of janitor he would be at Frito-Lay. So, you know, my mentors were my dad and uh, my grandfather. Now, they didn't mentor me in, you know, academics or how to write a check. They had no bank accounts. But they mentored me in how to work hard, how to be the first one, uh, never to be on time, to be early. You know, I'd never been late. You know, I have this thing, I'd, ra I'd rather be, you know, an hour early than five minutes late. Well, I, I gained that from them, but I didn't realize also another thing that that would separate me. Because when I, when I was first hired as a janitor, um, I remember I went and told my grandfather and my dad at the same time, and both of them said, when you mop that floor, you make sure that it shines, that people will know that a Montanez mopped it. Then my dad said, you listen to your grandfather. When, that, when you mop that floor, let people know that a Montanez so I took that on. I really believed that, you know, uh, in my heart, I was going to be the best janitor that Frito-Lay ever had. I, I took out the trash. I mopped the floors. But I saw that I had an influence as a janitor. People were smiling because they'd walk into the break room and it smelled fresh. They'd walk, something like, well, I can make people smile just by working hard. And, and I remember, because uh, there's always the doubters, you know, and I like to tell young people, you know, stay away from the haters, you know. And people said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm the janitor. Said, oh, you're, the, you're just a janitor? And I said, you know what? There's no such thing as just a janitor. There's no such thing as just a waiter. There's no such thing as a, there's no such thing as just. When you believe in your heart that you're going to be the best. And I believed in my heart. And people were taking that. And I, that floor shine, you know. And, uh, and, I, and, and I've said this before. You know, there, there's so many statements out there that are incorrect. And one of them is I'd like to correct, and the statement is that uh, you get promoted by who you know. And that's not true. You get pr promoted by who knows you, who knows of you, who knows 
your work ethic, who knows that they can trust you. You, you could say you know the CEO of the company, but if he doesn't know you, you'll never get that opportunity. See, I didn't realize that. I was just being me. I just want, I was just happy. I just wanted, you know, everything that I could get out of life in my area. So when the time did come when they were having problems, you know, I, I started to learn uh, my whole industry, uh, whether it was my job or not. You know, I, I would uh, hang out with the, the guy that ran the machines. I would hang out with the guy that, that cooked the product and I'd say, teach me this. And I was just having fun. And you've been listening to Richard Martinez and his story and what a story it is and what a lucky man he was and is to have a dad and a granddad who taught him to work hard and that no job was beneath any man. The dignity of work, well, it speaks for itself. Make sure people know Amantinez mopped that floor and make that floor shine. And the pride of work, my goodness, reminds me of the great street sweeper speech by Martin Luther King. By the way, we did an entire segment on it. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Type Martin Luther King and street sweeper speech. When we come back, more of this remarkable voice, Richard Montanez, his story, his family story, and overcoming obstacles here on Our American Story. return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the story of Richard Montanez, who went from janitor to millionaire. And let's return to Faith and the rest of this story. Montanez was both curious and a hard worker. Why was it that he was never afraid? Even as a child, he was taking chances. A lot of it was being naive. A lot of it was not knowing to play rules. You know, if you don't know the you just play the way you think you can. But, uh, you know, every Tuesday they had uh, after-school reading programs. And uh, one was here for the Latino kids and one for the non-Latino. So you, you, I would get in every Tuesday in the line that I was told to get in. And uh, one day I broke ranks and I got in the white line. And you should have seen my own line, intentionally or unintentionally. They were saying, Ricardo, estás loco. Richard, you're crazy. This is our line. And when I got in this line, I was really... Uh, I had a lot of fear because all the white kids turned around and was like, hey, the, you know, they were saying what they were taught. Their line's over there. Nothing, nothing me just like, hey, you know, you're in the wrong line. Kind of, you know how kids do it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I wonder if I can pass for being white. There was two beautiful ladies up there in the trailer. I remember blonde, blue eyes. And I kept thinking, are they going to notice that I'm not white? And really, I had, I had a fear that was unbelievable. But I had something inside of me that was greater than that fear. And when my friends were saying, what are you doing? I, I just looked at them and I whispered in a loud way, said, they have cookies inside. I'm going to get us some cookies. And the truth is, why did I get in that line? Why did I? Because sometimes you got to break ranks. You got to get out of that line you were told to get in. Because I was hungry. And I knew they had, that's all. I just wanted a cookie. I was hungry. 
And as much fear as I had, my hunger was greater than my fear. And that's why I tell people today, if you're hungry for that promotion, if you're hungry for that degree, if you're hungry to run for an office, fear will leave. And when I got up there, guess what those two ladies did? They filled my pockets with cookies. Now there's two morals of that story. One is hunger is the antidote to fear. If you're hungry, you'll never fear again. The other part of that story is that everyone needs to understand, and I mean everyone needs to understand that there's a cookie that's been baked just for you. Your job is to get out of that line that you were told to get into and get into the cookie line. For many of us, it means to get out of the uneducated line into the educated, the poverty line into the prosperity line. And uh, that's why I tell you, that's why uh, my success has been beyond my wildest dreams. I really didn't know any better. All I had was I'm hungry. So how did he become an executive? By the mid-1980s, Frito-Lay was struggling. As a way to boost morale, then-CEO Roger Enrico recorded a video message and disseminated it to the company's 300,000 employees. Um, he, he told everyone there across the country, actually across the world, 300, I think 300,000 plus employees at the time, um, we want all of you to act like owners. And you got to understand that was such a bold statement because that was during when corporate America was a command and control. Corporate America had not yet heard the word empowerment, let alone individuals. So he was basically saying, I empower you to act like an owner. Here's another thought for me was, wow, is he telling the truth? Is he, is, he's inviting the janitor to act like an owner. And so many people just, it just went, I said, don't you, didn't you hear what he just said? He said, we could all act like owners. So I, I went into action. I started, you know, researching my company. And, and then I asked the salesman if I could go with him on a weekend. I said, I'll load your truck up. So I went to the stores with him and I loaded the Frito-Lay products and just had a great learning the business, whatever I could. And I always say, you know, all you need is, as I said it earlier, all you need is one revelation. One revelation will lead to a revolution in your life. And what is a revelation? It's simply this. It's something that was there all along. It's just been unveiled. I was looking, and this was many, many years ago, and I saw it. I saw And here's what I saw. I saw no products that were catering to Latinos or to the person who loves spices. It's all pretty much, you know, salt and maybe barbecue flavored. Um, no one was selling you know, spicy flavored or anything hot. So I'm like, that was it. But I remember I went home and I sat in our, on our porch and we have the old fashioned um, um, of steps, you know, concrete. So I'm sitting there and in my neighborhood, in a lot of Latino neighborhoods like mine that I grew up in, we have something that is called the uh, Elote Man. It's a vendor, it's a corn, called the Corn Man. And he sells uh, uh, corn on a stick and he puts mayonnaise, butter, cheese, however you want it, lime, chili. And uh, remember I whistled and I said, let me have two, you know, one for my son here. And I said, yeah, with everything, of course. So I'm eating and I'm thinking, what could I do? What could I create? And then I looked at that and it looked just like a Cheeto. And it's just like, like that, the, what if I put chili on a Cheeto? So I went to work, you know, and I actually made up my own seasoning, you know, that and put it on an unseasoned Cheeto. My wife took some to work. I took some to work and everybody fell in love with it. And, you know, next thing you know, I, I, I called the CEO. Richard Montanez, the janitor, called the CEO of Frito-Lay. So I knew that I was different. 
because of my burrito day. I also had courage because I was hungry for my cookie day. So being innovative and full of courage, plus I was naive, I didn't know you weren't supposed to call the CEO. Well, you know, let's find out if he's telling the truth. So I call up and his uh, executive assistant was just that. She was an executive assistant because she saw it right away. And she started saying, what division do you do you run? Because he's a CEO, only another president or vice president would call him. I said, no, I work in California. Like, the general manager of California? No, I work at the Rancho Cucamonga plant. She's like, you're the plant director? I said, no. She goes, what are you? I'm the janitor. So hang on. CEO gets on. You know, 10 minutes later, he says, uh, I'll be there in two weeks. And uh, hung up the phone. And like I've always said, you know, um, there's always somebody in the room that will steal your, try to steal your, well, here comes the plan. See, I really didn't know what I'd done. Montanez had crossed a social boundary that his plant manager saw as unacceptable. Here he comes and he's so upset. And I don't understand what he's upset. He's just said, do you realize what you've done? The CEO, he's coming and he's bringing everybody with him to hear you. He goes, you do the presentation. I've never done a presentation. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, but I remember, you know, um, I'm married to a brilliant woman. You know, I've, I've always said that, you know, every, when you're in trouble, you know, go to the wife, go to the mom, go to the grandma. The woman has the answer. At the time when he was told he had to give the presentation, he was 26 and barely knew how to read or write. In fact, his wife filled out the application for Frito-Lay. And then again, his wife helped him put together his marketing plan. After bumbling through the presentation, the CEO stood up and said, put them up away, you are coming with us. Six months later, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were being tested in small Latino markets in East Los Angeles. If things didn't work out, Montanez would be back mopping the floor. After some test runs in 1992, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were nationally released. Today, Flamin' Hot Cheetos are one of Frito-Lay's hottest-selling commodities, a multi-billion dollar snack. Over a 35-year career, Richard Montanez, the former janitor, rose through the ranks and he is now the vice president of multicultural sales for PepsiCo America, the holding company of Frito-Lay. But more than that, Montanez has chosen to give back to the community with scholarships, food drives, and clothing drives. He never wants to forget where he came from. He still lives in Rancho Cucamonga with his family, where they serve the community together. Well, you know, when, when, when we have an event, again, what makes me proud is that it's, it's my three sons, uh, five grandkids, my wife, two daughter-in-laws, and a handful of friends. And 5,000 people show up at my events. We typically, we feed everybody lunch. We have a big stage, we have a sound system, we have a warehouse full of toys. We, I mean, um, we give every family a box of groceries. And what I'm proud about is that, because again, I know what it is to be hungry. The box of groceries is enough groceries to feed a family of four for a week. So when you open my grocery, there's not going to be a, a can that has no label on it. I said, I've said this, if it's not good enough for my kids, then I'm not going to give it to those kids. It's got to be just as, if sometimes even better. So when we're on stage and my grandkids, uh, that's our legacy, is I know when I look in the mirror that 
My success is for a reason. And that reason, it, with success comes a responsibility. And that responsibility is to your fellow man. And how, you know, I, I tell people, other people who've been financially successful, how big does your house have to be before you give back? But again, I think other executives, other people who have been very, very fortunate need to understand. And, and I think a lot of them are coming around. They realize when they look at their bank account, there's a reason there's, there's that much in there. Is, you know, part of it is to give it away. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Faith. And what a story. And we've been listening to Richard Montanez. One revelation, he said, can lead to a revolution. And what a revolution. Fear, he kept on saying, holds most people back. And it's so true. Richard Montanez's story here on Our American Stories. And if you know a Richard Montanez story near you, and they're all over this country, I love that he said that most success doesn't come from family connections because it's so true in this country. It's a bunch of rubbish. And the fact of the matter is anyone can make it in this country. And Richard's life story is testament to that. Again, Richard Martinez's story, and we're looking for stories like it. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.